Brian is our uh, youth director here at the church, if you don't know, uh, and he's doing and has done and will continue to do an excellent job. But if you don't mind, can I pray for you before we begin? I didn't get to do this last time he preached because I wasn't here, oh, but, yeah. but now I'm here. I think I was less nervous because of it. Oh, uh, yeah, that's probably, I was watching online anyways. Well, let's, uh, if you just extend your hands and pray for Brian. Father, we just thank you so much for your son, my brother. I pray, God, that as you have put this, uh, this on his heart, that your spirit will speak through him. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll minister to our hearts and to our lives as we are challenged, encouraged, and changed by your word. Use your son now as a holy vessel of your word. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Marv. Um, yeah, again, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the youth director here at the church. And uh, I was asked to present on this particular topic for Missions Month because of my own unique vocational experience in working directly with uh, two particular communities represented by the marginalized, uh, the present-day Samaritans, as it were. And because I'm so very passionate on this topic and have so much to say about it, and because I love a good rabbit trail, I'm going to be reading many of my thoughts here uh, to keep me on a tether of sorts. So if you were looking for a pure expository sermon, that will come uh, the next time. Um, first, I wanted uh, to help all of us to understand what we mean by going to our own Samaria. What is the significance of Samaria? In other words, why am I up here speaking today? And uh, this is a crazy pivotal moment um, in the life of Christ. He's getting ready uh, to ascend. Uh, so we come to our passage for today, which is uh, from the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And it says this, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. So let's go ahead and uh, open with a quick word of prayer. God in heaven, you're calling us to our own Samarias. Uh, so many of the people who are, are ignored, who are written off, who are uh, living in the shadows, uh, these are the people that your son came to seek and save. We do pray, God, that now uh, it would be the Spirit who would be here speaking, that I could uh, move over, slide over, and allow uh, you to speak through me, God. And so we lift up all of this in your great and holy name, Jesus, amen. So let the record show that uh, I'm starting right now. My None of the introduction that he made or any of that counts toward it. Uh, no, anyway, uh, I... We've, I think first what we need to do is we need to gain an understanding of why Jesus at this pivotal time at the ascension would find it significant to mention Samaria in particular. So to, to gain an understanding of this within the context 
again, of Jesus including it in this uber-pivotal moment of Christ's time on earth, I wanted to share a little bit of a history lesson. Don't worry, it won't be too long. I'm well caffeinated. Uh, Samaria is, at the time of Jesus, it, it, it's the geographic location of what was the northern kingdom of Israel, compro- comprised of ten of the twelve tribes. And toward the end of the 8th century BC, the Assyrians swept through the northern kingdom and took it into captivity, exiling some, but not all, of the Israelites to Assyria itself. Uh, And then the king of Assyria, what he does is he sends Gentiles of various ethnicities back into the land, uh, the geographic location of the northern kingdom. And that's chronicled in 2 Kings and Ezra. And the remaining Israelite population in and around Samaria then proceeded to intermarry with these foreigners. These resulting half-breeds, if you will, uh, known as Samaritans, soon began engaging in the idolatry of their Gentile homelands while also being instructed in the Jewish religion. And this hybrid religion of sorts came about which caused them to be despised by the clean and pure Jewish population to the south in Judea. Um, Some highlights of of this despising I found from gotquestions.org, a very resourceful place to go. Uh, From them, they say, We know from Nehemiah that the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, We also know that the Samaritans built a temple for themselves, on Mount Gerizim, which the Samaritans insisted was designated by Moses as the place where the nation should worship. From the book of Joshua, we know Samaria became a haven for Jewish outlaws and fugitives. They were welcomed in, and that furthered the hatred which existed between the two nations. Finally, the Samaritans, they actually only received uh, the first five books of Moses. We know those to be the Pentateuch. And they went ahead and rejected all the further writings of the prophets. And they also rejected all of the Jewish traditions. And from these causes arose an irreconcilable difference between them, so that the Jews regarded the Samaritans as the worst of the human race. Okay, in John 8 we find that. And they had no dealings with them. We find that in John 4. In spite of the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus broke down the barriers between them, preaching the gospel of peace to the Samaritans, as in John 4. And the apostles later followed his example, right, in Acts 8. And so we come to the marvelous account of the woman at the well, and what a beautiful picture of just how Jesus did topple these Uh, cultural walls, as it were. He smashed these cultural barriers and he perpetuated saving love to places otherwise left alone. In fact, the woman at the well, she's the picture of the marginalized, at least from the perspective of the Jew. And I won't read through his whole interaction, but some highlights. As Jesus is sitting with this woman, Okay, first of all, this is very taboo for a Jew. First of all, a Jewish male to be sitting with a, uh, any female. 
uh, much less a Samaritan. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then parenthetically it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is from John 4 as well. She goes on to say, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But, okay, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Hello, he's seeking the people to worship him in this moment. It's a beautiful thing. And then, of course, we know that many Samaritans, again, who were absolutely despised, uh, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Again, scandalous for a rabbi uh, to do such a thing. And he stayed there two days. And guess what? Many more believed because of his word. And this brings me to my first point. Listen, the marginalized of society hold a special place within the canon, within the ministry of Christ, and within the very heart of God. And they do. And you will find the scripture littered with evidence of it. One piece of evidence comes from Psalm 34 when it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And so what are the margins of society? And as I hunted around on the internet, I found a, a one definition that struck me. It says the margins of society refers to people who live outside of socially accepted norms or who lack social power okay so why am i up here uh what experience gives me the right to come up here and to be able to share on this topic well um i sent i essentially put myself on mission for six consecutive years as a caregiver working with the developmentally disabled uh for four years uh and also as a staff member at seattle's union gospel mission working with the homeless and addicted community for nearly two years at the time, I had been feeling a, a strong pull in my life to the margins of society, and I don't, I don't know why, of course I do now, but I, I, I had this pull, I wanted to come close to and alongside those who were looked down upon, or even those who were just simply looked at differently. At the time, I was getting ready to finish my time on active duty in the Navy, and many of my fellow officers uh, were being counseled on how to win the best corporate jobs. But here I am reading through a book called The Road to Daybreak by the Dutch priest and theologian Henry Nouwen. And I had this epiphany of sorts. It's, and, it, and that epiphany served to further fuel that aforementioned pool. Small details within his writings, uh, small details within his writings, they fascinated me. For example, the one detail that the physically disabled offer an invaluable 
indispensable perspective that otherwise would not exist because it doesn't come from us. And also through Nouwen's work, I began looking at the life of Francis of Assisi, being, de- being deeply impacted by his own story of entering the ministry. And here's how he did it. He entered the ministry by both figuratively and physically embracing those in the leper colony he vehemently abhorred for so very long. He was abhorred by it. He was abhorred by the scent as he rode by on his horse every time. And all of a sudden, he felt a pool that obviously came from God. And so, even though I was looking at a 70% pay cut by heading into this endeavor, I felt called, and that I simply needed this experience to be part of my life. And as I made my way through, I discovered some of the most beautiful people I have ever come across. The connections were so profound and powerful, but intensely fragile at times as well, mostly due to the travails of addiction. And uh, at the same time, I also began to observe just how forgotten some members of these communities really were, being stepped over like garbage on the street by people who simply didn't take the time to get to know them. And then, so case in point, um, bringing up a photo here of uh, Wanda, my lead volunteer, who I'll take this moment of awkwardness to just point out how, how great she is. Now, um, the mission, uh, the Union Gospel Mission, I worked at the men's shelter, which was kind of like the marquee location of the nine locations they had running at the time. And when I showed up to work, it was, uh, it was, it was intense. It was a place that was highly intense. Um, I was working in guest services, so I was the first point of contact for a lot of um, our guests. We referred to them as guests who came through the door. Um, some of them were regulars. Others of them uh, were just transient and coming in from uh, all kinds of different places. And I remember, oh, uh, that's not it, but uh, I remember, we'll get there. Uh, I remember specifically a time, there was, a, there was this little room off to the side. It was so crazy because this was in an old building in Pine, the Pioneer Square District of Seattle. And uh, there was this old time chapel, preached the gospel there probably 150 times. But in the back of that room, there was this little sliver of a room that we called the prayer room. And it was an amazing place. It was probably where I was impacted most deeply uh, during my time there. And I remember one time that there, there was this man, I think he was from Cuba, and he was a large man. He was probably about 6'3", and I, I would say that he was probably uh, pushing 230, 240 pounds. And this was a massive man. You might be thinking massive this way, but no, massive like a sequoia, okay? This guy, he was intimidating. Um, He looked the part. There wasn't going to be anybody that was going to be giving this guy a problem. But what he did in that moment, he asked me for prayer, and we went into the prayer room, and he confessed something to me. He confided in me that he had nearly killed a man the night before. And what do you do with that? We called the police so much that they didn't arrive within, you know, 45 minutes or an hour or so. Uh, No, but he confided in me that he was close to doing it. He could have done it. And he was standing on the precipice of committing that tremendous sin. And as I was praying with him, I felt him begin to tremble and melt. 
I felt him becoming uh, just like putty in the hands of the Lord, as so many times when I went into that prayer room, uh, so many people did. Almost every time there were sniffles that started to occur as I prayed. I felt at the time that I was at the crossroads of a tremendous amount of darkness and a tremendous amount of light as if everything biblical was being funneled even into the very rooms at the mission where these men were in recovery and where they were coming in from off the street. It was a very intense and exhausting place to be indeed. It was absolutely, as the pastor would say, bananas. Uh, But that leads me to uh, my second point. And it says, you are never more closely aligned with the work of Christ than when you are loving and championing the unloved and the unlovable for the gospel. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So good. What others, or what what other communities constitute uh, our spiritual Samaria? I can remember uh, in 1986, uh, which was a long time ago. I was 10 years old, fourth grade, and we went to South America um, with my mom. And I remember my sister, who's sitting here today, and I remember very vividly that we went into a shopping mall. I can almost remember what it was that I got. I was very happy. Um, And as we were leaving, there was a young boy who was disfigured. And he came up and he did his thing, right? The routine, the song and the dance. And and as my grandfather said, keep walking, do not give, because you're only going to fuel something even worse, my sister began weeping and sobbing. And she did not want to leave. She wanted so badly to pour into this young boy. And I'll never forget that. Uh, my sister has a beautiful heart of compassion. But the other people that are a part of our spiritual Samaria, the homeless, the physically disabled, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the addict, the human trafficked, the immigrant, the ex-convict, the mentally ill. And I actually, um, I have a sticker that I put on uh, my guitar. Don't worry, I'm not going to start breaking out into song. Um, but I have a sticker that I decided to put on my guitar. I, I always told myself I would not uh, put any sort of stickers on my musical instruments, but if, if I was going to put a sticker on any of them, it's probably going to be this one. I'm not going to be doing too much more harm than's already been done. So, uh, But what it says, it says this. It says, love thy neighbor. And then it lists all of these different communities. And I put it on there because as a follower of Christ, I'm called to go to every single one of these people. And I'm called to pour out the love of Christ to them all. And so if there was ever a sticker to put on any of my musical instruments, it would be that one. This sticker is obviously a reference um, to the second greatest commandment found in Matthew 22. Uh, which was within Christ's reply to the Pharisees when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. We obviously know that comes from the Old Testament. Um, Our Savior is quoting that. And the crazy thing is, look, I get it. I get it that uh, 
These differences, they challenge and they stretch us. But hear me when I say that ministering to the people listed here does not mean by any stretch of the imagination translate into adoption of behavior. Yes, there are behaviors that are perpetuated through these communities. Okay? Some of them, they turn us off. But did you know that Jesus Christ, as he walked the earth, he came upon a tax collector named Matthew? Okay? And he didn't walk the other way. He walked toward him, and he invested in him, and he poured in him, and he said, I'm going to befriend this man. Okay? Okay? And as he befriended him, he began to grow intimate with him, and finally he becomes a disciple. And guess what? Jesus Christ never bilked anyone out of money. We're to follow Christ at every turn. And so we go because if we believe the words Christ spoke in Acts 1.8, and if we believe the words Christ spoke in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, then we know Christ's command to bring the gospel to all nations that every person might have a fighting chance at salvation. Therefore, we cannot forsake nor forget those who are engaged in different lifestyles and behaviors. Paul, in Galatians 5, he reiterates the words of Christ by saying, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so who is thy neighbor? Or placeon as the Greek states? Well, it becomes clear. Uh, luckily for us, the question, the same question was posed to our Savior. And the scripture reads like this, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on, by on the other side. But, plot twist, right? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, ha he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them uh, to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, Christ is saying, to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Christ, in that moment, he is making a very strong point that there is a level playing field. In Job 34, we read, Yet he, being God Almighty, is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And that brings me to the next point. God's hands are incapable of mistakes and no human is found to be lacking in value or beyond the reach of either his mercy or his redemption. No one. 
in Deuteronomy 32.4. Again, referencing God Almighty, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just, a faithful God without prejudice. He is righteous and true. Listen, God does not make mistakes. You are not a mistake. And the people that you look at differently are not a mistake. Because the Bible clearly states that we're all created in the image and likeness of Almighty God. I remember looking out the window of the chapel, that old-time chapel in downtown Seattle at the men's shelter as I preached the gospel to the homeless, some awake, some not awake, uh, seeing the same tourists and the same business people who could be found stepping over our guests like any other obstacle on the sidewalk, ill-reputed disruptions to busy schedules. And let's talk about partiality, which you can know as favoritism, depending on which uh, translation uh, you're looking at. There's a quote from uh, author Joseph Drepos, and it says, Our culture is obsessed with partiality. We want our children to be gifted and talented, have the best teachers and coaches, and be taught separately from the average children. We want them to go to the best schools. We prize information that rates the best and worst colleges and the best and worst cities and towns to live in and the best and worst of everything else from cars and microwave ovens to movies and music. Entire industries do nothing but rate one thing over another. This is useful when we need a new washing machine, but we can never let this mindset extend to how we see people. This is not how God sees his creation it reminds me, in working with youth, it reminds me of Instagram and the issue that's happening with Facebook where it's been revealed that Facebook's own internal research has found that Instagram can be harmful to teenage girls. Comparison is a, a thief, right? We all know the quote. Comparison is the thief of joy. When we begin to compare, we create an us in them environment. It is toxic, and it's exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy smiles down on every uh, comparison made on social media, big or small. And, and so what does God have to say about partiality or favoritism? So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, Acts 10.34, for God shows no partiality, Romans 2.11. God shows no partiality, Galatians 2.6. James 2.3-4 says you must not give the best seat to the one in fancy clothes and tell the one who is poor to stand at the side or sit on the floor. That is the same as saying that some people are better than others and you would be acting like a crooked judge. And in the next chapter of James in 3.17 Okay, James equates impartiality with wisdom. Are we partial in our dealings with our neighbors? And again, I'm not talking about our neighbors. I'm talking about our neighbors. What conclusions do you find yourself jumping to as they come into your queue? How do you rate them? One way we could reflect on this question would be to think of how we perceive some of the great biblical personalities, people God chose to do some of his most critical work. 
because to say some of these guys were on the margins would be a vast understatement. We've got Isaiah walking around naked prophesying, okay? Probably shouldn't have acted that out. All right. (laughs) Jeremiah hiding his underwear under a rock by the Euphrates. Ezekiel eating a scroll, laying on one side for 390 days, cooking his food over a fire of manure, and prophesying over dry bones that come to life. We have John the Baptist rocking his burlap and having honey and locusts from last week stuck in his beard. And then, of course, we have, how can we forget David, dancing around in his linen ephod uh, with reckless abandon, right? And Jesus himself was on the margins of society, being functionally homeless for all intents and purposes. The plainness of Jesus is remarkable as it's laid out within the book of Isaiah. Matthew and Luke both say foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The words of Christ himself. Listen, there is no us versus them. It's just us. I have a friend here, uh, my friend Ollie, um, this, this kind of ties in. My friend Ollie, uh, we were coming back from Washington, D.C. He's from Afghanistan. You can pray for uh, him and his family. And I had him for three hours, okay? On the way there, he was sleeping. It was like, what, five in the morning. Uh, but on the way back, he had no place to go, right? And so, of course, we're talking about Jesus because that's what happens when you hang out with me, okay? Uh, I'm sharing the gospel with Ali, and of all the analogies of pulling out all the stops that I could ever have ever used in my entire life, Ali said to me, he said, the thing that struck me most out of everything that you told me was when you talked about the fact that I am just a beggar pointing another beggar to the bread. This is what he latched onto, and this points out to everyone that no, we are not a Christian looking down upon you, but yet we, and we're not good, we're simply forgiven, we're just simply pointing people the way they should go. In Acts uh, 15, 7 through 9, um, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Uh, Next point, allow gospel-driven compassion to flood out Satan-driven comparison. In 2 Corinthians 10, This is from the Amplified, okay? So it'll sound a little different, but I love the way that it's translated here. It says, we do not have the audacity to put ourselves in the same class or compare ourselves with some who supply testimonials to commend themselves. And right here, focus in. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they lack wisdom and behave like fools. Rich Mullins is a hero of mine. He was kind of, he's been considered uh, kind of like the Bob Dylan of the contemporary uh, Christian music uh, scene. And he, uh, he's a hero of mine. He was a singer-songwriter. He was killed in a car crash in 1997. Um, Him and other guys like Keith Green, these guys, they didn't write 
for a beat or for a rhyme. They wrote to pour their hearts out so that we might have a lifeline to cling to. And these guys are the artists who have given me so much of a lifeline in a, in a life full of just, yeah. So they have a, they represent the Christian life with authenticity and utter rawness. And so uh, some of you might not like this quote, and that's okay. Uh, but it's something that I felt like I, I needed to share. Uh, and Rich, he was also functionally homeless, basically. Uh, he was truly a remarkable person. And it says, Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And this is what I've come to think, that if I want to identify fully with Jesus Christ, who I claim to be my Savior and Lord, the best way that I can do that is to identify with the poor. This, I know, will go against the teachings of all the popular evangelical preachers, but they're just wrong. They're not bad, they're just wrong. Christianity is not about building an absolutely secure little niche in the world where you can live with your perfect little wife and your perfect little children in a beautiful little house where you have no gays or minority groups anywhere near you. Christianity is about learning to love like Jesus loved, and Jesus loved the poor, and Jesus loved the brokenhearted. One of the coolest parts about being a staff member at the Union Gospel Mission was getting to drive volunteers around in the search and rescue van. And um, you saw a picture of that earlier. This is actually probably one of the vans that I drive, I drove, okay? Uh, and we would take and we would go out and, with a, a team of volunteers and uh, we would go to where the homeless were. We had hot spots, so to speak, where we would go out and we would know that there would be uh, a gathering of homeless. I remember under uh, the 99 Viaduct, under different places, the West Seattle Bridge. Uh, we knew where to go and we went. Okay? We took out supplies. If you, you would see, we would offer to pray with them. We would hand them jackets and gloves and socks. Socks, by the way, are probably the biggest commodity among the homeless community. And it's, 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 it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. You felt like you were alive and living the Christian life as you did it. You felt like you were doing the work of Christ. Now, always remember that. This is, uh, and I guess my challenge for you is to also go. You're surrounded on all sides by the marginalized if you only take the time to look and my final point, it says, the Holy Spirit will orchestrate your gospel endeavors toward the marginalized. You need only ask. I don't know how many, how far along you guys are advanced in your Christian faith. Uh, we probably have believers, non-believers in, in here. But how many of you know that you begin to ask for something and you see God delivering. It's a beautiful thing. It's so simple, but it's something that gets overlooked again and again. And again from the Amplified coming out of the book of Luke, the words, again, of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Messiah, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce release, pardon, forgiveness to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, downtrodden, bruised, crushed by tragedy. 
This is who Christ came to seek and to save. And my conclusion is this. It's very much the case that you can not only look like Jesus as you bring the gospel to those in the margins, but you can look most like Jesus as you bring the gospel to those in the margins. Behind every forgotten face is a forgotten story, one that is always ripe for the telling. Will you dare step into that story and be for them the only Jesus they may ever encounter? Again, everyone has a story, and God may have brought you into theirs so that it might have the most joyful of endings. So uh, I'll go ahead and close us out in prayer. God in heaven, we, we lift you up. We make you uh, high. Make us low, Lord. Help us to walk in humility and meekness just as your son did as he walked the earth and he went purposely and intentionally to be among the physically and figuratively poor. We think of the Beatitudes in this moment, Jesus. We think about our need to seize the moment and to take the gospel to so many who feel that they've been written off, who are being oppressed, who are being literally stepped over and looked over. God, give us hearts uh, for that, those communities. Convict us when we create an us and them uh, type of outlook within our minds and help us uh, to remember to go with all boldness knowing that we are working alongside the very Savior himself. So we thank you for this time and go before us in our Samarias. In Jesus' name, amen.